Are you ready to realize the true potential in your life and help others do the same? Get equipped to create a thriving future with the Secrets of Success podcast. Inspire others to live, lead, and work on purpose. And experience the joy of watching satisfaction and productivity come to life. And now, here's your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, each week we like to have information that's going to transform your life. And today, oh, I'm very excited because I've met our guest personally in Philadelphia just a few months ago. And you know what he is touted as well as probably the number one sales rep ever. And you don't want to miss his story. And when we think about life, are we not all in sales? Are we not always trying to influence others? So I'd like you to welcome uh, Rick Mayer to the show. Rick, welcome to the show. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> okay. And Rick, we had a chance to meet personally in Philadelphia with a mastermind group, you know, where other experts and authors were gathered. And I was just fascinated by your story. So Rick, before we kind of get into your journey after college and getting into sales, I always give uh, guests a chance to kind of share their story, where they grew up, some of their history is, you know, we're all people and we have, you know, something that's sort of led to us where we are. So what, just tell us about your growing up, your years and, and just some of your background. Sure. Um, well, I, I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and raised there. Um, and my parents, um, you know, had a falling out. I was, I was an infant, three months at the time. So I was given up for adoption, and then I was adopted into uh, a single um, woman's family who had some kids of her own. So I, I was raised by her, and eventually she, she liked to take care of other children. I was, eventually I was raised one of nine children. Wow. Um, and so, uh, you know, back then, you know, money wasn't as important, I think, as, as, it, as it is today. Um, but, it, you know, it was still tough times. Um, but... You know, I had lots of love. I had everything I always wanted as a kid. Um, but, you know, we did the best we could. And I went to school. I went to good school. I had, came from a good neighborhood. I live way out in the sticks. There was three farms surrounding me. So it was kind of fun as a kid growing up. We had tons of uh, things to play with, like farm animals and playing in the woods. And, you know, we didn't have the, the dangers that exist today. But I think it was a great childhood. Um, but I, was, I grew up in the absence of a father. So what I did is a lot of the people in Pittsburgh worked in the steel mills. So every day at about five o'clock, all these dads would come home and I would take turns shooting over to one of their homes and they would tell me all these jokes that they told each other in the steel mills working all day side by side. Um, and that's where I, I developed a sense of humor. I was like five, six years old because I would hear all these jokes, all these people would tell every day and it really helped. Uh, communication um, at a young age. and I'm sure, Rick, sorry to interrupt, maybe your mom wasn't always pleased with the content of every joke. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's true, too. She was like, well, let's, 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 you know, let's hear some of these jokes. And I would tell them, she goes, we can't tell that one in school. <laughs> um, but most of the jokes were, were fun. And it was great because I was an audience for these, these men who come home and couldn't wait to tell me a joke. They'd call the house. And back then, you didn't have call waiting. So if they got a busy signal, they'd send one of their kids to fetch me because they knew how much I'd appreciate their jokes. <laughs> so you were the audience of your friends' uh, fathers uh, throughout the years. 
Exactly. That's where it all started. I, I referred to these people as my neighbor dads. I didn't have I didn't have a live-in dad, but I had like five or six I could go to at any time. Well, you know, and it's neat how communities really do uh, nurture and they see the need for uh, having that father figure. So, Rick, as you progressed, I, I know we were talking about your journey in sales in college. What, what did you do after high school? Where did you go to college and, and what were you taking? Uh, I went to um, college at a small school called Indiana University of Pennsylvania. It's in the town of Indiana. Um and that's where Jimmy Stewart's from, the famous actor. So it was kind of, uh, that's his claim to fame there. Um, and I took up business because uh, I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I just knew I wanted to be in business. Um, and then, you know, my final year, I decided that I should take marketing in some, I always pictured myself as working for an advertising firm or doing something like that, never actually direct one-on-one sales. Um, but then, during my senior year, I did an internship uh, selling Kirby vacuum cleaners, and that really changed everything for me. Well, I heard your story about how you got into that, and uh, why don't you just share with our audience, and, and by the way, uh, audience, is um, is uh, Rick had semi-retired when he was 39, but you're back working now because your information needs to be out there. And, you know, your new book, The Basket of Opportunity, is helping people as well. So you, you had this internship with Kirby. Uh, tell us that sort of that journey of really not thinking about getting into sales, but then you got into it. Sure. Well, I, I did, I used to go door to door with Kirby vacuum cleaners. And I started in December. So, you know, it was 10 degrees, the snow was flying in western Pennsylvania, and I'd have two boxes. One was a demo box, and the other one was of course some of the extra equipment. And I would go door to door offering free carpet shampoos. And I went to this one house and of course this guy, I prejudged him and he didn't have carpet, he didn't have a car, he didn't have electricity and he didn't have a bathroom. He had an out, outhouse outside. So to make a long story short, I just let the guy talk to me. He didn't even want to let me in his house, but I gave him some compliments, warmed him up a little bit. He let me in his house and after 45 minutes, he decided to purchase the product. And I thought this guy was dirt poor. He ended up being very successful. He had 500, almost $500,000 in cash in his upstairs freezer that he ran off a generator because he didn't have electricity. So that changed my whole career path because I thought I don't have any sales skills. But I listened to this guy. I, I made him laugh a few times, and I really let him talk where a lot of people were afraid of him, never knocked on his door, and never bothered him because they prejudged him because he was poor and had an outhouse. Well, I found out those valuable lessons uh, at 21 years old that you never prejudge. And here this guy ended up having almost half a million dollars in his freezer. That changed everything for me because I knew I could sell to people by just being nice and listening um, maybe tell a few jokes here and there for entertainment um, to get them to like you. Um, and then I decided that's what I was going to do. Well, you, you also do a little bit of uh, stand-up comedy once in a while too, don't you, Rick? I do. I, there's no, nothing like making people laugh because when you, when you make a person laugh, they're the most genuine, authentic state they can be in. So having a sense of humor is critically important to your success in life. Absolutely. It, it was everything because I, I always worked on a model. Once I got into selling, 
um, other products. I, I figured out the formula for me was like, listen, trust, and buy. And it was in that order, and it had to go in that order. So if a person liked you, they would listen to you. And if they listened to you, um, the likelihood of them trusting you increased. And once they trust you, then you earn the right to ask them to buy your product. But it all comes down from likability in the beginning. Yeah, and a lot of people don't listen to it. And we'll get into some of your uh, sales recommendations. But after uh, college and you had this start with the Kirby vacuums, what happened after that, Rick? After I got out of college, um, my adoptive mom actually took in two more children. And I couldn't, there was no room for me in the house. So she said, you're pretty much on your own. You know, I was married when I was 15 and you're 18. You went to college, now you're 22, 23. You can make it on your own. And I was devastated because I didn't really know where I was going to live. So I lived in this hotel that was over 100 years old. Um, and that's when I, I stayed there, but I was kind of poor. Um, I, I think I paid like $190 or $100 a week to stay here. It was really cheap. Um, and I stayed there. And one, one night my girlfriend was with me and the roof caved in. And it caved in, and it was snowing on our heads. <laughs> and she got up and left and went home and ended the relationship. She couldn't take any more of my struggle. And so that really was the turning point. That was my aha moment, moment like, wow, if I don't get my life together quick, I'm not going to have a life or any relationship or any happiness. So that's when it really turned the corner. So then what did you do after the snow on your head experience? I mean, you can't make that stuff up, Rick, where you have the cave-in of your hotel. That's how well you're doing. And you have the snow and you say, okay, listen, I have a choice to go in this different direction. What were the next steps that you took? The next steps I took were um, I was, I, I got a job at a law firm, right? I had to take a bus back and forth. I did that for about six months. I had long days, made $6.50 an hour, and, but I learned a, a lot. And then in that time, I started looking for better jobs. And I got this courier job where my job was to go pick up all the deposits that were made at banks at the end of the day and then drive them to the airport so they could fly them back to their home office where their bank headquarters was. Well, in those banks, I noticed that they had investment representatives. And I said, well, how does, it, how does a, a stockbroker work in a bank? Aren't they competitors? And they said, well, no, rather than us, see our assets leave the bank, we just hire our own brokers and train them to keep the assets here. I said, okay. So I wanted to, I found out more about that and they told me how to do it. So I had to go get all these licenses, my Series 6, Series 7, Series 63, and a few insurance licenses. And I did. I went out and got all these licenses. I studied all the time, got them, went back to the job and applied for it. And he says, I'm sorry, we're not hiring you. You're too, you seem like in your interview, you're too aggressive. I said, a salesman too aggressive? That's crazy. You, you want someone that's aggressive. But they, what I found out is they only hired women. Um, they wanted women to deal with their clientele. So that motivated me, and that's when I went on to um, other places. Um, I went into an interview with A.G. Edwards, which one, at the time was one of the most respected firms in the business because they weren't on Wall Street. They were based out of St. Louis. So that's when I went to St. Louis for three weeks and trained how to offer products uh, through their company the right way. 
And then it just took off after that. Now, uh, is that when you started to um, really get in the stride with sales and start setting some uh, records that uh, might or might not have been being broken now years later? But is that where you started to open these investment accounts? Yes. It was at that time um, that I came up with an idea. When I first started working for the brokerage firm, Ken, what they did is I walked in and I said, well, where's my office? And they pointed to a cubicle. They said, come over here. And I walked over there. I sat down. I said, well, well how do I get a hold of people? And then they brought in a little phone, put it there. <laughs> there was no computers, just a phone, a piece of paper, a pencil. And I said, well, where's my clients? And they threw me a phone book. And I said, holy cow, I get a cold call people. I ain't like doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did it for a few weeks and I went into the uh, manager's office and I begged him. I said, look, can you please let me go out and, and meet people face to face? I said, you know, I, I, I said, I'm not a bad looking kid. I said, I'm not the greatest thing since sliced bread, whatever, but please let me try in person because then they'll see that I really want to help them and they'll feel the passion as opposed to a phone call. I didn't want to feel like a used car salesman on the phone. So he did. He said, all right, I'll give you a month. Well, what happened is I went to every business I could think of from barber shops to flower shops to steel mills to power plants. I went into coal mines. I went everywhere. Um, I went on the barges on the river. Um, you name it, I went into it. I, I told my story of how I could help people. And what I did is when I went to talk to people, I would just say, hey, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a new investment broker, but I work for a firm that has some great ideas, and I thought we could grow together. I could help you grow your business while uh, I grow my business at the same time. It was like a sharing equal thing, and everyone loved that. Um, and then I got their information, and I asked them if I could come see them in a few weeks with a couple ideas that I had that they might be interested in. They said, sure. I found out their first name. I knew their parents' names. I knew their kids' names. I knew where they lived, how long they lived there, what they did for a living, why. Um, I knew their dogs' names. I really got personal with people very, very quickly. Um, And that opened things up for me because they liked me, because I got on a personal level with them quick without being pushy. So you really spent, when you think about, you know, one of your strategies, Rick, to build rapport is that you're really focused on the client and getting to know them in a sincere way. Yes, and, and doing it quickly. I mean, it was different, you know, 20 years ago than it is today. Today we have this micro climate with cell phones and everything, and everything's really fast. But back then, you know, you just didn't have 10 seconds to make a first impression. They, people gave you at least a minute or two. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I got real personal real quick. I would say, hi, you know, my name's Rick. Um, may I have your first name? And they would say yes. And once they start agreeing to certain things, you can go a little bit deeper. And I just wanted to int- my, introduce myself and drop off a card. And these turned out to be 20, 30-minute conversations. And they love me. So, How old were you at that time, Rick? How old was I? Yeah. I was 28. 28 at that time. Okay. And so you're working for this investment account and they, you were going out to face-to-face. Then sort of what happened with your results there? Okay, so I, I, I got all these people to agree 
to meet at a future date. You don't want to try to sell someone right off the bat. That's wrong. You want to establish a relationship. So I said, I'll be coming back in the next three to four weeks. Is that okay? And I went back and they said, yes. I scheduled all these appointments, probably scheduled about 25, 30 appointments. And then I started going back to see these people. That's when I came up with an idea of how I could make these people realize that investments are very, very simple if you break them down. So I went out and I, I spent $8 on this wicker picnic basket. And what I did is there would be nothing in it. I would have a briefcase in one hand, a, a wicker picnic basket in the other, and I would go to these people's homes. Now, my idea was to sh show these people how the investments they want to have that will make them money for future growth existed in their own house. It wasn't something I was selling. It was something they were sitting on top of where they mm -hmm. lived. So I went in and I asked, um, it was always the, the wife. It was, I always attached myself to the woman because I really felt that they wore the pants and they were the emotional decision makers. Um, the guy would do what they, they wanted and they followed their suit. So I would sit them down in the, in the living room or kitchen. I'd say, look, I only need to go through two important areas of your home. One is the most used bathroom and the second is the kitchen. And what I did was um, the woman would say, okay, follow me. And I would go in with my basket. They didn't know that the basket was empty. They thought I was bringing them a picnic lunch. It was really funny. I said, no, 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 there's no puppy in here, no picnic. This is for you, but let's go in and get the product. So I would go into their bathroom and I would say, look, can I take all these products and dump them in my basket? Please, I'm, gonna, I'm not taking it. I just want you to do this. They did it. Then we'd, I'd come in and dump them on the floor and then – I would go into the kitchen and I would dump 25, 30 products in, out of the refrigerator and cupboards into this basket. And I said, look, I'll put everything back. I just want to demonstrate a point. I would go into the living room. They would sit on the couch and I would put them in piles of companies that made the products that they're using. So I would have mayonnaise, macaroni and cheese and mustard all made by Kraft. I would put a Kraft pile. I would have uh, diapers, um, Pampers, uh, shampoo, toothpaste, toilet paper, and another pile, and that'd be Procter and Gamble. And then I have another pile over here that may be, um, let's let's say, it was Sony, and they had either a, a television or a stereo. And I would say I just attached the speaker, just something small to put in the pile. And I had seven, eight pals all around them. It looked like Christmas morning in an average house of all these goods. And I'm like, guys, do you see what you have here? They didn't know that I put them in company specific. Not, I didn't say that point to them yet. Mm -hmm. But I said, this is your fortune. You're sitting on a gold mine here. And then I would go into my briefcase and I would pull out um, spreadsheets that I already had calculated because everybody's house had the same products in them. I mean, 90% of them. Right. So I would show them and I would say, how much do you spend on your bathroom products a month. And they would say about a hundred bucks. I said, okay. And I would say, well, how much do you spend on your kitchen products? And they would say about $300. I said, okay. Uh, how much do you spend on TVs and so forth every year, every two years, whatever. And they would tell me. And then I, I would say, well, where do you get your gas? And they said, we'll get it at the Exxon station or mobile station down the street. And I said, well, I see a Coca-Cola um, thing over there. Do you buy Coke? And I say, yeah. I say, well, I see a McDonald's bag over there. And they say, yeah, I get that. So I had all these companies. And I showed them if they just invested the amount 
that they were spending on the products in their house anyway into the companies that actually made the products, how much they would have in 5, 10, 15, and 20-year increments. And then I would say, do you have savings? They'd say, yeah, I have 10000 in the bank or 15000 I'd say, okay. Well, if you put five or 10000 into investments of companies that you believe in because you're using these products, this is how much you'd have money you'd have in 10 or 20 years. And it would blow them away because they couldn't believe that $10,000 into McDonald's or Procter & Gamble or these computer companies or TV or whatever they had could grow to two, three $300,000 over 20 years. And I said, it can, it has, and I can't guarantee um, future performance based on past, but do you think that people are going to stop brushing their teeth and putting deodorant on even if we're in a recession? And they would say no. So that was the magic. We weren't going after super high expensive items. We were going after recession-proof, low-cost items that people are going to need no matter what happens to their life. Mm. And you just invest in those companies, and then you add a little bit more per month um, to the investment. So don't put it in the bank. Put it in the investment. You can still get it back out. You're just going to have to take seven days to get it back out instead of going to the bank and pulling it out that day. And they agreed to it. My business exploded. These people saw that they could put their kids through college. They could buy a second home in 10, 15, 20 years. They could retire earlier. They gave me so much referral business that instead of going into one house and opening up one or two accounts, I would go into a house and open up five or 10 and have the whole neighborhood there. It was like a Tupperware party. So I called myself the Avon guy of investing. I did this from, and I was talking to coal miners and Steel workers. A lot of these people never graduated from eighth grade. Mm. And with that simple wicker picnic basket, I opened up 110 accounts in my first six weeks as a broker using a basket. And that's how, that's how powerful the presentation was. They weren't buying my product. They were buying their own. And people will always buy their own product more than they'll buy yours. That's amazing. I mean, for those of us that, that are listening, 110 accounts in six weeks, and then that's pretty well unheard of in this industry. And a lot of people would uh, not even get that after two or three or four years of being in the business. That's exactly right. Those, those are four or five year average returns because uh, 70% of all brokers don't make it through their first year. And they say that the average person opens a, a one account a month, um, maybe two if they're really good, three. And I was opening five to ten per visit. And it, and it was just because of a simple idea. Because people, people will not spend money if they don't understand the product. And people were terrified of the stock market because it seemed so confusing that only people, the rich people at the country club would have. But when mm -hmm. I took this, and broke it down to a picnic basket and toilet paper, toothpaste, and shampoo and said, guys, just double up on your money you're spending on this product and invest it in a company that makes it. It'll make you rich, but it's not going to happen overnight. And they agreed, and it did. A lot of these people retired early. Just like I said, 20 years later, they still call me and said, thank you so much. You know, I put $10,000 in there, and I have $190,000 now. I never added any more. 
if they would have added more, it'd have been a half a million, but they still got 200 and they're very happy. Right. And then you shifted to uh, annuities or was, was this with the same firm or, or not? No, what happened was, um, well, I first came, well, here, so I was 28, uh, almost 29 years old. And I started to do this uh, with a brokerage firm. And then my adoptive mom died on my 29th birthday. And I had one person in my national brokerage firm that I communicated with from California. He lived in San Diego and he, and he kept calling me at the office and I wasn't there because I was in a funeral for a week and planning everything. And I finally called him. He goes, Oh man. He says, Rick, I don't even know what to say. I'm so close to my mom and she's a single person too. And is there anything I can do? I said, well, yeah. I said, you mind if I come out to California to get away? I said, things are kind of chaotic here. And, I went out and saw San Diego, and that was it. I literally moved there a month and a half later. Um, but when I got there, I didn't do the annuities yet. I, <laughs> I came up with another idea, delivering pizza. that kind of made me some money in the interim. Yeah, tell the story. I heard that one already, too, but uh, I know the audience would be curious about it. Is What was this idea? This was a simple idea that I, when I, when I left the, the firm and went to California, I was not allowed to act with my licenses for one year. You cannot transfer securities um, for one year across the region. So I had to wait for a year to activate them again. So I'm like, well, what am I going to do? So I went back to my roots in college and I said, well, when I was there part-time, I delivered pizza. So I delivered pizza at this uh, small boutique shop in San Diego you know, I was making a couple bucks, 200 bucks a week or whatever it was. And then I came up with an idea. Um, pizza chains will not deliver past three or four miles outside their zone. And the reason they won't is because they can't get it to there fast enough to, to keep it hot. And mm. you, you'll deliver cold pizzas all the time. So I went out the three-mile zone, and I got my own clients. There was a very uh, a little secluded area in San Diego called Rancho Santa Fe, very wealthy area. And I knocked on these people's gates. Most of them, you couldn't get to their house because they were protected by, you know, two, three hundred foot driveways and gates. I would ring their intercom, and I would ask them. I would say, "Hey, do you guys like pizza?" and astonishing answer over and over again was absolutely, but no one will deliver it to it. So I said, well, I'll deliver it to you. And I didn't even have a job yet. I didn't even have a job delivering pizza. Um, I, I started with this one company, but there was no money. And so I left. I said, I'm going to go find uh, my own clientele and see if I can make some money here. So what I did is going to these homes, I basically built my own business. I got 60 clients, knocked on a couple hundred doors, a couple gates, and they let me in to talk to me. Um, they said, yeah, we, we, you could deliver to me, and, you know, and these people had money. So I bet them, I said, well, I'll tell you what, I, I will bring you a special once or twice a week. I'll have a lunch special between 1 and 4 o'clock, and you just call and order, but make sure you order it for me. So then I went back and I found a job at another pizza place and I said, I want to deliver pizza. And they said, okay, well, you know, give me your license. I'll run a DMV report and, and you can start immediately. And I said, well, you don't understand. I want to 
work my own shift. And he said, well, we have customers you have to work when we tell you to. I says, no, no, you don't understand. I have my own clientele. And they laughed at me. And they said, clientele, this is pizza delivery. We make pizzas, you deliver it, and they eat it. That's it. I said, well, no, I got my own client. So I finally, I left that company. I went through four or five companies to find someone that would listen to me. Finally, one manager came in and I says, here's the deal. I got 60 wealthy clients in Rancho Santa Fe that want to order every day lunch special. They already agreed to do it. He said, all right, I'll give it a shot. Well, we did it. I worked every day from 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock, and I would deliver sometimes 30 pizzas at a time to these people. And they're always having parties, and they, these are equestrian, horse, equestrian centers, and everyone had mm. horse ranches. So I'd go in there, and then 10 more people would order. I'd go back, and I did this, and I was making $1,800 a week <laughs> delivering pizza three hours a day, no nights, no weekends. They, they were so happy, and they tipped me. I mean, pizza would be $10. They'd give me $20, $30. They didn't say keep the change. Um, and I did this. At, at, at the end of the year, it ended up being $113,000 delivering pizza 15 hours a week. It was the greatest single job I ever had. Um, but what happened is I was fired for it because um, the regional manager, this guy had a couple pizza shops. The regional manager was upset because I was making more money than him and he was working 70 hours a week. <laughs> so how did he fire? He fired the you in terms of the arrangement. Yeah. So well, here's what he weren't able to access me, the product he, he, anymore. He, he, well, yeah, the, the show, here's how it works. The shop is only open from 10 o'clock to 1 and then 4 o'clock on. I went in there with the manager, and the manager opened it from 1 to 4. And even though the pizza shop made money, it, it caused a huge amount of jealousy between all the other drivers. Um, and rather than rewarding my creative idea and entrepreneur spirit, they punished me by letting me go because everyone else was – they found that I was making this kind of money and they got upset. It was, it was a mess, but I, I thought it was great. Don't you uh, love the socialist sort of mindset, right? <laughs> you showed the initiative, you went out there, you did it all, you got the clients, you organized it, and then jealousy uh, sets in. Yeah, that was, that was unfortunate. But what really bothered me is they continued to deliver to my clients just without paying for my services. <laughs> but it was okay. You know why, Ken? Because the goal was accomplished. The mission was done. I mean, that lit a fire under me. Here I grew up in a, in a poor place in Western PA, and now I come to California. I deliver pizza, and I make more money than I've ever made. Um, I thought, wow, did I just land in the, um, the land of laws? I mean, it was just wonderful to me. And I'm like, well, I can do that. What the heck is ahead of me? And then this momentum just started to explode. That's when I went and I got a, I got a bartending job after that. Um, just because bartending jobs are great for getting information. So I did this. I think I did it for four months, five months. And I talked to all the patrons in the bar. And these were all retired World War II vets that joined the Navy in San Diego. And then when they got out of the Navy, they stayed there. Right. And they told me, I said, what, what's the best industry to get in here? And they said, banking, got to get into banking. And they said, well, go to Wells Fargo, Washington Mutual. And they talked about investments. So here I went into the banks 
I worked there for six months, and then I worked my way into the investment um, arena again. Now, that original job that I took, I tried to get in Pennsylvania where the guy didn't hire me because he only hired women. Now I was doing that inside banks. I had three branches um, inside the Washington Mutual um, region, and then I started selling annuities. And annuities were wonderful because what happens is Inside the bank, you might have 10, 15,000, 20,000 clients um, to go through, but you have to do it a certain way. And what happens is the customer comes into the bank and then they might have a $100,000 CD that's maturing. And rather than see that money go out to Merrill Lynch, the banks hire brokers like us to keep those major assets there and we give them a competitive uh, option. So we weren't called stockbrokers, we were called account specialists. Well, I worked there for three months and I realized these people don't know what they're doing. They're missing the whole boat. I want all these people's assets, not just the assets they got in the bank. So here's what I did. Rather than these old people come to the bank, I went to the old people's houses. And boy, did this work like a charm. Because So now I'm in a person's house, I'm having tea and coffee, and I'm really getting to know these people. They're comfortable because it's not in the bank, it's, it's their house. There's a total mind shift. Now I'm on mm. their home court. And rather than them giving me the 100000 they had at my bank, I'd walk out of there with 300000 that I got from Wells Fargo, and then I also got from Payne Weber, because now I got all their assets, because that's, that's what happens when they like you and they trust you. And you're, you're in their home, you get all the assets that that person has, not just the ones that were at the bank. So that how my business exploded. And in one month, I sold 108 annuities. I don't think that's ever been done in a full year before. And I did it in a month. And it was because of that mindset. You know, it's an interesting, Rick, that, uh, you know, and as a sales professional myself and teaching it, how simple it is, but most people aren't willing to do it, just to invest in building relationships. That's exactly right. I didn't do anything special except there's a the pizza thing was really creative, um, and the basket of opportunity. I still try to do that if I could today. I mean, I thought that was great, but I, I thought, why in the world would I sit here and wait for a CD to mature in in this bank when I know darn right well that person's got assets? Because the minimum back then was a hundred thousand dollars for a CD that could be insured by FDIC. Mm. So if somebody had a $100,000 CD, I knew there's a reason it was only 100,000. They didn't want to risk any more because it wouldn't be covered if the bank goes under. So they had, these people had six, $700,000 in six, seven banks all across town. Well, how do you get that money? Well, you gotta, you gotta get close to that person. How do you get close to them? You gotta get them to know you and like you. How do you do that? Because when they come into your bank, it's all business for them. But when you go to their house, now you're shifting it from a business perspective to personal. Now you can get all their assets, and that's what I did. Wow. So then how long did you stay there? Because you moved into some other industries after this and just rocked the boat there. Yeah, I was there uh, for about two years, uh, and then Y2K happened. Um, the year 2000, everything, the whole stock market got crushed. So people weren't moving money anywhere. They weren't doing anything. Um, I think the NASDAQ dropped 70%. Um, the Dow, of course, dropped Nobody did anything for like two years. Um, so I, I still had to make a living. So that's when I went and applied 
uh, for a job to sell vacation homes, vacation timeshares. And where was that? Was that in California as well, Rick? Yeah, that was in San Diego. And I worked for a small company called Pacific Monarch Resorts. And this was neat. I never sold one of these. I didn't even know what they were. I never heard of timeshares, but I never sold them. Um, but I went in there um, and I was intimidated. There was 56 real estate agents because you had to have a license. Um, I went in there uh, against 56 people. Uh, and all you do is you sit down with people for 90 minutes and then you talk to them about their vacation needs and you try to get those vacation dollars and uh, just apply it to your timeshare program. And that way they save money because they only pay for it once and they give it to their kids forever. Um, but you just have to convince them that your program is good. My first month, um, I broke all their 14-year company records, and I was the top agent. In my first month of a product, I didn't know. And all I did, got them to like me. They listened to me. I told them jokes, had fun. They trusted me, and they bought. And it exploded right out of the gate. The second month, I was a manager. The third month, I was a spokesman for the company. And according to your list here, you sold 1,800 vacation homes in just over three years? Yes. So what happened is, as a speaker, they, they saw me and they said, well, is there anything we can do to, to make you comfortable here? Because they didn't want to lose me because they knew there were other companies that paid more than they did. So they were smart and said, well, what can we do? I said, well, here's what you can do. Um, rather than me sell to one person at a time, why don't you let me sell to two or three groups at a time. So I was doing present that way. Um, they don't, I said, you don't have to pay me more. I'll earn it. Just give me more clients uh, to sell to. And they did. And I started selling to two and three groups at a time. And then that got successful. And then they were putting, they literally got rid of half their agents and let me sell to audiences of 40 and 60 people in big giant showroom movie theaters. So there were days I'd sell 21 timeshares in a day, and most people don't ever do that in two or three months, but I was able to have that opportunity because of the sales success. I would just go in front of crowds and tell story after story after story of my poverty upbringing, and it was so hysterical. They videotaped it, and then Tony Robbins got a hold of it, and then it just really, my career really escalated from there. Uh, I don't recall the connection to Tony Robbins, so what was the story there, Rick, with with Anthony, uh, I, he Tony sends out, um, I guess, scouts uh, that looks for speaking talent, um, and they go out and they just you know see people. And they, I didn't even know I was videotaped, and uh, I was videotaped uh, twice, and then it got in his hands, and I didn't pursue anything because he basically wanted people to go out and help build his career, and he was already, as far as I was concerned, launched. But he would pay right. you to, to help go out and sell to businesses. Um, and then get them to go to his seminars. He could make a good living that way, but I was making a very good living just staying put. So I, I just stayed where I was. But it was neat that how I was just at that level, that you even had an interest spark from someone like that just because you were a podium speaker in a company I just started for. So I was very um, overwhelmed. Oh, awesome. Awesome. So you were there doing selling vacation ownerships and then uh you trans you you transferred out of that what was sort of the reason for moving out of that industry and then where did you go to so what happened is i was doing these um podium uh, speeches three to four times a day in san diego and then i was going to go to the caribbean and do it um 
Cancun. I was going to go to St. Thomas. I was going to bounce around, do some stuff at the Ritz-Carlton and Marriott. Um, I could just make a lot more income. And then 9-11 happened. So uh, basically in two years, I had two major things happen. The crash of Y2K with the stock market and then 9-11 happens. So I couldn't go to the Caribbean because nobody was flying. So all those timeshares, mm. they were dead. But there was one place that is it's still the top most travel to city now is San Francisco. People would come to San Francisco like crazy because when you're here, you can go to wine country, you can go to Carmel, you can go to Tahoe, you can go to Yosemite. There's a lot of things around it. So people, even though they were afraid to fly, they were still driving to come here. So I, I came up here and... Um, one of my friends in San Diego got me an interview and he says, Hey, you gotta, you gotta let Rick come up and be your podium speaker. He's really good. He can get the crowd excited, yada, yada. So I went up there and they interviewed me. I said, don't interview me. I said, that's a waste of time. I said, just let me, give me an audience and let me go to work. And they did. They gave me the slowest day of the week, which was a Wednesday. And I went in, um, they gave me, um, a podium full of like 30 people. And I just went in and I did it. And I made them $108,000 in 45 minutes. And I was hired immediately. Um, and that's what got me to San Francisco. They never did $100,000 in a weekday ever. And I did it just off one group. And they have four different showings. I did it off my first showing. All I did is went in there, Ken. I told my stories. I'd tell about four or five jokes. Um, and they'd laugh and they'd like me. And then I'd show them how to use it. I, I simplified the product because people didn't understand timeshare. So I made it real simple. I showed them how to use it. I told them how I have Mexican clients 18 years old that are going all over the world. If they can do it, why shouldn't you people have the same privilege? And they, that hit them hard. So that's how I got to San Francisco. And then um, I got out of timeshare uh, and went to Vegas and started my own loan business. Uh, that's how that transferred. Okay, and then what was the reason they got out of timeshare? It was just too busy working for other people or what was sort of the motivation there? Um, it, it was, it was just, it was, I, I didn't feel that we were always doing the best interest of the client. Uh, the maintenance fees were, it's a wonderful product. There's nothing like it. But the maintenance fees kept going up and up and up and up every year. And I didn't mm. like that because I felt you know, we're selling a car and telling the person that the only thing you have to pay for is for gas and insurance and maintenance for the rest of their life. But they get a brand new car in the driveway every year. And that was, the, that was the pitch. And it made sense to me. And I used timeshare in 49 states. It's a wonderful product. But the maintenance fees went from $500 a year for a two-bedroom condo for a week vacation stay to $2,000 a year. And that's what I didn't, I didn't see the value. Right. Uh, like you did before. It was hard for me to sell something I didn't believe in because you can't sell it with passion. So why put any effort into it? Oh, okay. Awesome. So then you went to Vegas and then you said you opened your own company there. So what were you doing there? I started, I, I went to uh, Vegas. Um, I wanted to do some time sharing in Vegas, but with the casinos, uh, the Mandalay Bay, I tried to do some stuff there, but it didn't work out. I was just too small of a fish. And it was a big, big market. So I got into loans, and there was something called the option arm, which was an investment loan. For, it was invented by Merrill Lynch primarily for investors, where you could take money out of a house, but their mortgage rate did not change. So if a person had a $400,000 house, you could take $200,000 cash out of her house, invest it, but your mortgage rate, your mortgage payment didn't go up. It stayed the same, 
because you had a negative amortization loan. The interest rate dropped, but you had deferred interest. So people thought, well, why would I want to add interest onto my mortgage and make it even higher? I said, well, it's common sense because you can invest the money that's in your house outside of the house um, and turn that debt equity into something that's growing and alive. And negative amortization on a house at the time was only 3%. Mm-hmm. Well, so as long as you invested money that was sitting in your house doing nothing and it was growing more than 3%, it made that investment um, make sense. So I did this. I learned how to do this. Um, and within a year, I had over 250 loans. But that was just the beginning of that success. Back then, um, I was also a licensed real estate agent. You could use your, you could do loans in as a real estate agent, buy and sell homes. Well, I would go into a house, and I'll make this quick. I would go into a house that was for sale. My clients were realtors. So I would go up to a realtor and say, look, you have this house here, and you want to sell it. And what's the reason you want to sell it? He said, well, I want to earn a commission, and my client needs their money. I said, well, what if I showed you a way that you could keep the client in that house, they can get their money, but I can get you two more sales instead of one. He said, well, how can you do that? I said, well, the house that you're listing for sale for your seller, I'm going to refinance it. We're going to pull the money out, and we're going to go buy two more homes, investment properties like it, and you can represent that client as the buying realtor on two more houses instead of just the one you're trying to sell. Everybody wins. You get two transactions instead of one, their client gets their money that they were going to use to invest anyway, and I get three loan transactions out of it. Once again, my business exploded. I, I did my first seminar at Century 21, and in an hour, I get 18 loans. 18 loans takes four to six months to get. I did it in an hour um, with that. And they had two loan officers inside their Century 21, but they still gave me the business because I showed them how to invest in put it in the 401ks and do all kinds of stuff if they pulled the money out. So that exploded, and that's when I decided I know what I'm doing. Now I'm going to go back to San Francisco and get into the real estate side of it. That's exactly what I did. Well, I mean, and the stories continue, Rick. (laughs) So we only have a few minutes left in the show. And, you know, it's fascinating as we think about your journey and that. But one of the things I like to just transition for a minute, Rick, and your your accomplishments are incredible. So you have a proven track record, and there's very few people who could even uh, you know hold a candle to you in that way. So that being said, you travel around uh, the globe speaking and training. What are if if you were to talk to me as a individual who is trying to influence others, or connect with others, or build rapport with others? If you were to kind of extrapolate, what is it that you teach others to do so that they could um, duplicate or at least attempt to do what you have done in your lifetime in terms of your success in sales? So what are some of the core teachings that you, I mean, you started with like, listen, trust, and buy, but what what are some core things that the listeners can take away from you today that if they do it, they will start moving towards more success in influencing others in sales and communications? 
Uh, yeah, good point. Uh, I think the most important thing I teach is rapport techniques, how to get rapport. Um, I did a talk at a Rotary Club a few months back, and there was about 60 people there, and you know, I got a standing ovation when I brought out the, the picnic basket for the basket opportunity. And he said, well, but, but how can we do that? Can we take your idea? I said, absolutely. I, just, I mean, I wrote a book on it, so everyone knows it's my idea, but it's there to share. If everybody does this, everybody will succeed. So that was just a means to get rapport. Now, I talked about the easy sales flow strategy, like, listen, trust, but. So when I teach groups of people, um, I give them some of those techniques, but more importantly, I like to spend a week um, with a company that I do a talk for, and I like to go out in the field with these people and, and show them this is what you could have said here. Now, this is, isn't just what you say, but more importantly, how you say it and when you say it. So I don't use closing techniques. I use opening techniques. So the basket, the pizza, all the, the, the technique I use by going to the house and the bank customers rather than bringing the bank customers to the bank are just techniques to establish more rapport. And I just show people how to get personal with them. Um, I have like seven, one, one has 17 different um, steps where you can go from meeting at the door to being on the first name basis to knowing everything about that customer in five, 10 minutes. So when you do ask them to buy, it's going to be so natural and so easy flowing and organic that they won't even real. I've, I've told jokes to people for 10 minutes and made them laugh and feel so comfortable. They literally go get their checkbooks and say, how much do I owe you? And I'm like, you don't even know what you're buying. I haven't done the presentation yet. And they're like, we don't care. <laughs> I mean, that, that's happened to me 20 times. Um, that's how important the like is. So I just go through report techniques, through different sales flows, whatever their product is, I look at their script. I usually rewrite it to make it simpler and more conversational-like so their client likes them and feels comfortable with them faster. You've got to get through the like as fast as you can. Today is 2017. People are going to trust you. They're probably going to vet you before you even go to their home. They're going to know about your company, maybe even about you. So the only thing that's left to sell is yourself. So I look at when I go to appointment, Ken, I can only screw it up by not getting them to like me. They should already know the product they're buying, how much money they have. I just want them to do place that business with me. And that's why I put such a focus on rapport and likability. What is, what is the mistakes that a lot of sales reps, let's say go, let's go into the retail environment and somebody shows up to your furniture store or your electronic store or whatever it is. Uh, what is it that most sales reps are not doing? Well, I think, I think when someone comes in a store, you, you have to approach the customer um, for one reason. That's just to let them know that you're available there to help them. But there's a fine line because that, that's why all the uh, buyers as customers, we say, oh, I'm just looking, I'm just looking. I tell people right away, this is what I'm looking for, only so, they, so it saves me time. But people either, these retail salespeople, they're either too pushy or they're not pushy enough. And I mean pushy, you've got to introduce yourself and make yourself available to help them. You know, say, hi, I'm Linda, uh, I'm here, let me know anything you need. Now, 
some people can do that, but most people, they don't. They're afraid that the customer is going to say, I'm just here to look, or they follow them around, and that makes people feel uneasy too. So there's a fine line. Great. So if you were to, you know, I mean, one of the other things you do is really help people to to be successful in life and your sense of humor and the fact, you know, let's uh, carpe diem, live every day to our fullest. What would be a couple of sort of closing strategies or thoughts or ideas or success um, tidbits that you would share with our audience today, Rick? Well, I, it, it's really difficult to be specific because every situation is different. But one thing you have to, you, you cannot sell something you're not passionate about or, or you like. Uh, all the products that I've ever sold, um, I was passionate about. Um, even a vacuum cleaner, I was passionate about that, even at the time, because that's all I had to work with. So if you're not passionate, you got to move on to the next product. Because if people don't feel that transference of energy, then, and they're not on the same vibration level as you, they're not going to do business with you. I don't care who you are and what you're selling. It doesn't work. Um, but in terms of, I don't really use closing techniques because I feel that if you focus on rapport and get people to like you and they trust it, never work for a company that has a bad reputation because you're dead in the water before you start. Mm-hmm. So make sure the company is credible and sell the benefit of the credibility of the company. The fact that, you know, it's AAA, better business bureau rated. Um, it's, you know, has a good Moody's rating. If it's a stock company, if it's a bank, it's reputable and known. People understand it. Sell the credibility of the company benefit. How does that, that means trust. That means peace of mind. Stay away from the features. The features you should spend three seconds on, a benefit you should spend 60 seconds on. Um, and that really makes a difference. But I still believe in my success, um, a lot of people go on what's called rides, uh, Ken, where they'll piggyback me. They'll go in a presentation to see what I'm doing. And every single time anyone's ever come out of a presentation, they're like, you didn't do anything extraordinary. You, you, you didn't, I was expecting this magical thing that you would say that closed them. And I'm like, no, you don't close. No one wants to be closed. They want to be open. They want to have a relationship with you. And that's how you get tons of referral business. Mm. It's so important, Rick. Now, Rick, if people want to, and thank you for that, if people want to find out more about you, uh, remind them uh, the title of your book, where they can get it, and also how they can contact you if they're interested in your services or some other information from you. Uh, sure. So the title of my book is The Basket of Opportunity, Lessons Learned on My Journey uh, Upward, and that's available at Amazon. Uh, My phone number is 415-377-1888. And, of course, uh, Rick Mayer Speaks is my website. Um, They can contact me at rick at rickmayer, M-A-H-E-R, speaks.com. And the book is The Basket of Opportunity by Rick Mayer, M-A-H-E-R. Well, Rick, uh, you know, we could spend probably another hour talking about all the stories. And that is something I think it's important for all our listeners is that story captivates. Story keeps person engaged. Story is important to building rapport. So, Rick, thanks very much for being on the show. Oh, thank you. Ken. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed it. Well, listeners, uh, you have listened to one of the number one sales reps in the world. And so just take that information to say, hey, I need to open people 
It's really about being likable, being interested in them, paying attention to them, uh, listening, uh, all the things that are basic one-on-one, one-on-one uh, communication skills. So think about that as you go forward in that it's really not about manipulating other individuals or closing them. It's really working with them and honoring them and serving them. As always, as we wrap up the show, if you like what we're doing, we just thank you in advance for sharing. We thank you for listening and participating in the show. So I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes, and you've been listening to Secrets of Success. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.